Father, open to our understanding through the instruction of the Spirit, the passage before us today. We are familiar with these words, but I pray that you would deepen us in them, that you would draw us closer to you. And as we gather around this table uniquely today, we pray that here we might draw close in sanctifying grace, that we might receive from you the work of grace that you desire in our lives and that we might commune with Christ, risen and coming again as we consider his death and its meaning to us as a church and as we commune with one another, united in Christ. Lord, give us aid as we study the scriptures together today, as we consider this exhortation of your word. Please direct us and strengthen us. Meet with us here and draw to Christ, we pray, those that are yet separated from him. We plead in their behalf and ask God that you would draw and strengthen and direct each of us here to prosper under the word today. Through Christ we pray, amen. Trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is the most unifying power in the world. The new birth that sinners receive by trusting the gospel unites in one body men and women, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free. This good news unites as brothers and sisters in Christ, Jew and Gentile, Israeli and Arab, Russian and Ukrainian, and it bridges every other human divide. Jesus' death in our place to secure our salvation from God's wrath is put on display in his churches when we gather in unity, a unity that overwhelms the natural societal divisions that separate people in this fallen world. Coming to the one head, Christ, We unite across every divide. Memorable example of this is General Robert E. Lee led the Army of Northern Virginia in the Civil War, and we would renounce any part that Lee played in upholding slavery by that war. And yet he was a genuine brother in Christ, I truly believe. One Sunday after the war's completion, he attended St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia. And when it came time for the communion, a black gentleman rose from his seat and walked to the front to receive the elements from the priest. This was not protocol at the time. And everybody could just feel the assembly freeze. Right at that moment, General Lee rose from his seat, walked to the front, and knelt beside the man and the congregation followed question later Lee reported this or reportedly said this the ground is level at the foot of the cross there was much uneven ground in Lee's day and there is much uneven ground in ours but not at the table of the Lord. The ground here is level in Christ. For here we announce that we are all sinners saved 
by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ's death alone. Here we celebrate what Christ has done to unite us, not divide us. Here the ground is level for all of God's people. And on this ground, the Corinthian church was failing miserably. Their failure at the Lord's table was so misguided, so rooted in their godless culture, so undistinct from the world in which they lived, that Paul issues a stern rebuke that is about the worst thing that could ever be said about a local church. And here it is in chapter 11 and verse 17, the rebuke. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I do not commend you connects to verse 2, where he does commend them. And it seems that what he's speaking of there is that in their worship, they have indeed practiced the directives of the apostle. And so he commends them for the direction of of their services, that is for the elements of the worship. But when it comes to this particular practice, he does not commend them. So their practice was right, but how they practiced that practice was horrifically off base. It was so terrible that what Jesus designed to build their faith was actually having a negative effect. It was tearing it down. Their church gatherings were having a negative impact, and this had to change. But before he offers the correction here, we have the rebuke, but before he offers the correction, first in verse 18 he lays bare what the problem is. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part for their sideline, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So the gathering of the church had become a staging ground where natural societal divisions were put on display. Their assemblies revealing how they were divided, not how they were united. So Paul will explain what he means in a moment, but first he adds his sideline in verse 19 to acknowledge that all is not lost in this. Your gatherings together are having a negative effect on your spiritual walk, but here's the upside of that, verse 19, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That is, true faith is often exposed when the fleshly response of others surfaces in the assembly. This is never fun, but Paul says it's useful. Difficulty in churches can reveal those who are mature in the faith and those who are not. Those who have God's agenda and those who do not. Those who live the gospel and those who only talk about it. Like pure metals, true faith is exposed by fire. The fire of illness, the fire of church conflict, of sinful choices, of suffering severe disappointment, or suffering even mistreatment, and on it goes. It reveals where people stand. So, I've not given up 
says the Apostle Paul, there are advantages to these divisions. They will reveal who stands with the gospel and who does not. But let me get now to the point of correction. Here's what's wrong as he rebukes them. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now that has to arrest their attention because that is what they were doing. They were eating the Lord's Supper. But they were doing so in such a sinful manner as to destroy its very meaning. So in that sense, they were not eating the Lord's Supper. The word that's used here for supper is a Greek term that was commonly used of the main meal of the day, a meal that would have been eaten in the late afternoon or the evening, similar to ours, not that way everywhere and in every culture, but it was in there. So we're talking about a significant meal, a gathering for worship around a table that was intended to draw the people together. But they might be saying at this point, we're not eating the Lord's Supper. Okay, Paul, prove your charge. What do you mean we're not eating the Lord's Supper? Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Here, we want to do a little bit of bridge work between that culture and ours, taking some of the words that are used here and knowing the cultural environment of the day. This will help us. And I think at least get close to reconstructing the situation. So first of all, the Lord's Supper was observed in the ancient church as a full meal, often referred to as an agape meal or love feast celebrating Christian unity. Where precisely the Lord's Supper piece of that fit in the meal, there's all kinds of debate we really don't know ultimately. But it was in the context of a full meal. Secondly, churches met in homes, usually owned by one of the wealthier members. Number three, wealthier Corinthian houses invariably had large dining room kitchens. One room a somewhat larger area, and then they also had a central interior courtyard. Archaeology reveals this. These types of houses are seen, been uncovered and noted. Number four, Corinthian society had a rigid class structure. We would view this as scandalous in our Western perspective. But they saw it as the only way to retain cohesion in society. You needed to know your place and you needed to play your part. That's how society survives. That's their culture. So it was simply a way of life that the wealthy were afforded better seating, better food, and larger portions of food than those of lower class that were at the same meal. We would have looked at that and said, this is terrible. For them, that was life. They didn't even notice it, like a fish swimming in water. That was just their world. So it seems, as we put this together, with some of the wording that Paul uses, It seems something like this. Wealthier members of the church are clustered in the dining room kitchen and they're eating their larger, better portions of food there together and arriving early 
because of their wealth and their freedoms, while slaves and poorer people who were probably fulfilling responsibilities of work were arriving later and were taking their meager portions in the atrium or the courtyard. Now we may not have that construction perfectly, ideally put together, but with the wording that's used, with the context, we get pretty close there. And you'll see this theme working throughout the time of his correction here. Now drunkenness is a sin, Ephesians 5 and verse 18. But that is not really Paul's focus here. And you've probably heard some dramatic sermons or considered this some way. As this, this is the dramatic thinking. Can you imagine they're drunk at the table? That was sin. It was wrong. It was a big deal. But as we understand what Paul's doing here, that wasn't really the point. The ultimate point here is that they are eating separately, and it is indicating a divide in the church from the, of the haves and the have-nots, as we say. So again, a pagan Corinthian would look at that. They would, say, visit the church this day and come into this situation and see the wealthy eating in one place and the poor eating in another, and an unbelieving Corinthian would think nothing of it. This is just normal life. This is how it works. They wouldn't even consider it. Paul's considering it. The apostle is appalled. And this strike, because this strikes against the very central message of the supper. Verse 22, he continues then. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 22 makes it very clear that the issue is not drunkenness. What is the issue? It's what you're doing here in public as the church of God, humiliating those who have nothing. At a table that is meant to unify, you are demonstrating divisions. This is a shame-honor culture we're looking at here, the wealthy clique of the church is humiliating the poor. They felt out of place, they felt embarrassed, they felt dismissed, and this was how they were supposed to feel everywhere that they went in that culture. But Paul turns the tables on the wealthy and shames them. Sarcastically, he says, hey, you all have houses, right? Can't you eat in your houses? You have the wealth to have your own homes, to take your luxurious meals there, not here. Now Paul does not say, share your best food with the rest of the church. I don't know how much he's thinking through that, but if you think about it, if the poor got wind of the kind of fare that was going on at the Corinthian church, there'd be all kinds of people there for the meal that weren't actually there for the service, right? Rather than you giving your best food for all the church to eat, humble yourself and eat what everybody else does. As the church gets together, it's time for hot dogs. They can eat what they're used to eating at home. 
But at the Lord's Supper they should eat so as to display their unity as the body of Christ. And so to humble themselves, to join with those who had less wealth, and thus to demonstrate unity. That's the rebuke. So Paul moves next now to the corrective. That's what they're doing wrong. And he arrests their attention with that. But now, what is the corrective? The corrective comes in looking at the tradition, in looking at the authority by which they are even doing the Lord's Supper, observing that table. So the corrective is observe the Lord's Supper in obedience to Christ. You need to recalibrate, rethink how you're doing this. Verse 23, For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ at that last Passover meal that he observed with his disciples while Judas was betraying him to the Jewish authorities. As was customary in the Passover ritual, Jesus took what we would see as probably a large chunk of of rigid, somewhat brittle, unleavened bread, like a big, huge, thick cracker. And he would have broken it ceremonially, depicting the unity of those that were eating from that single loaf. That was the traditional way at the beginning of a meal. Jesus blessed the bread. That is, he gave thanks for the bread. Different accounts in the Gospels and here. Same idea. The word that's used there of giving thanks is Eucharisteo. You might hear the uh, churches that refer to this as the Eucharist. It gives Baptist willies sometimes to hear that word. What's Eucharist? It just means thanks. It's a good word. There's nothing wrong with it. It just means that he, it, it speaks of Jesus giving thanks for the bread. And saying this strange, making this strange statement, this is my body which is for you. Jesus, think of it. Think of where the Corinthians are. The divisions, the pride, the differences, the disunity. Think of it. Jesus is making the most selfless sacrifice in the history of the world. This is my body which is for you. About to give his body in sacrifice to pay the penalty of the sins of his people. Now some Christian communions argue that the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood. So that his actual body and his actual blood become mixed with in some way or overtake the elements. Such notions, with all due respect, are just pure fantasy. And just to offer just two reasons why I would make that statement. First, textually speaking, if the bread is transformed into Christ's actual body, then the cup is transformed into an actual covenant, which is nonsensical. Because what he says of the bread in verse 23, 24. Verse 25 says, In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
So if the bread is his body, then the cup is a literal covenant. Doesn't make sense. Secondly, Jesus is standing right there in front of them. And what he is saying is true right then and there, just as much as it is true today. So nothing changed. And as they look at his hand holding that bread, they see his body and they see the bread and they see that they're not the same. His hand does not become bread and he breaks off his hand to hand to them to eat. So they clearly were drawing some other idea from this. What he means is that eating the bread is a means by which we commune with Christ in his death, in the sacrifice of his body, in the flowing of his blood and death. He means that eating the bread at this meal becomes to the soul what literal bread becomes to the body. And as we take in the elements, we are to sense the body is digesting. It is taking in and being benefited by. And so it is with the death of Christ for the believer. Let me say it this way. The bread becomes an experiential vehicle by which we feed in spirit on the once for all sacrifice body and blood of Christ. He calls us to do this in remembrance of him. Whenever you find the word remember in the Bible, it's almost invariable. Don't think of it the way we use the word. We use the word of memory, of forgetting and remembering. Now, that's there, and that's certainly a piece of it. But remembrance here is a memorializing of Christ's work to redeem us, a communion with the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. We might use the word profitably, consider in remembrance of me, in consideration of me, in focus upon me, that idea. So it's, it's not mere remembering, as Zwingli insisted. And while we may want to speak a bit differently than to use Calvin's spiritual presence of Christ in the elements, I think Calvin's view strikes much closer to the point at hand. The physical eating and drinking becomes in some sense a spiritual communion with the presence of Christ at the meal. Do this in remembrance, in consideration, in focus upon me. You will commune at this table with the risen Christ. Verse 25. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood of a sacrificial animal was sprinkled symbolically on the Israelites when the old covenant was established. Exodus 24, verse 8. Christ shed blood now, the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. Christ shed blood now inaugurates a new covenant. That is a new arrangement by which we are saved. By which a sinner is reconciled to God. So the old covenant was fading away as the new covenant is coming to birth. And in the new covenant... 
Christ fulfills the covenantal promises that God exemplified in Israel's sacrificial system. This cup, the shedding of my blood, that is, is the new covenant. Indicating this new arrangement by which we are saved through the sacrifice of Christ. Now, verse 26, I think probably, not have to be, but likely, is Paul's words here in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As often as. How do we take that phrase? As often as, first of all, it's a phrase that leaves room for a church to determine how often they will observe the Lord's Supper. Secondly, let us also affirm that there is no particular advantage to observing it infrequently. It was almost certainly the practice of the early church to observe it weekly. That's the only indication that we have. So let us not devise weak arguments for limiting the supper, such as statements like, it takes away from preaching time. Or we can't sing as many songs. Or infrequency hedges against ritualism, or the like. Since our Lord instituted this meal... Since by it we commune in our soul spirits with the risen Christ, since it is calibrated to celebrate our oneness as the body of Christ, and to sanctify our souls, let none of us ever speak a single word of downplaying its importance. Put nothing ahead of it. Do not minimize it as in the way, ever. For by this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we eat this meal, we bear witness together that the Lord we are so carefully considering is not entombed in a grave. We remember Him who was dead and is alive, who is now alive and who is coming again. So this is all calibrated to get the Corinthians back on track to sting them with this rebuke that opens their hearts to recalibrating their practice. And as they chew on that, Paul turns the screws in even deeper with a warning. Judgment awaits those who abuse the Lord's table. That's the theme of verses 27 and following. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Thinking contextually, what is it to approach the table in an unworthy manner? What what does Paul have in mind here? The answer for many faith communities is your worthiness to approach the table. Your worthiness as, I don't even know how to put it, one who's not sinned too grievously too recently? How would we ever be able to establish our worthiness before the table? Now, please, let me be the last man on earth to suggest that we come to this table 
unrepentant or cavalier about our sin. God forbid. But we must not force Paul to say what he's not saying here. In context, he is working to correct those who come to the Lord's Supper thinking only of themselves and not of their brothers and sisters. The unworthy person is that wealthy church member eating a heavy meal with friends in the dining room while the poor are eating meager fare in the atrium. That's the unworthy approach to the table that he has in mind. So maybe closer to home, more applicable to us who do not have anything like this problem. Nobody's getting drunk here, and nobody's getting full here, are they? But maybe it's approaching the table when you're nurturing division with another brother or sister in Christ. Maybe it's approaching the table as you participate in a clique of friends that has no interest in drawing anyone else in. Maybe it's approaching the table with callous disregard for the suffering of other members or a certain even disdain for a particular brother or sister. This is how we approach the table in an unworthy manner. And I would, I would say, by way of suggestion, that believers who are fretting over whether or not they have sinned to some degree that renders them unworthy to take the meal, Paul is not denying the table to anyone on the basis of the previous week's record of wrongs. Again, we must not approach this table with unrepentant heart. An entrenched sin. And I think it is right for us to consider that that's not where we are. But let's consider what Paul means. The only person that approaches this table is a sinner. Years ago, a Scottish pastor noticed a woman in the congregation refusing to take the elements as she sat in her seat, weeping. The pastor left the table at the front and bending down next to her side, said softly in his Scottish brogue, Take it, my dear. It's for sinners. Take it, my dear. It's for sinners. That was not leading her into temptation. That was not leading her to violate this text. It was a good piece of pastoral care. It is for sinners. This table is for sinners and only for sinners. And the right kind of introspection is that which directs our gaze upward to Christ's work on our behalf. We lift our faces, as it were, with tears of contrition and repentance in our eyes, but with joy on our faces. The table is about our sin, yes, but it is all about the saving death of Jesus that reconciles us to God. 
as we have sung this morning, we come in the spirit not of how wicked am I and am I worthy to receive this table, but rather why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. For those of you who do not know Christ as Savior, you cannot lift your face to God that way. You cannot lift your face with broken heart of joy and thanksgiving. And maybe you gather with us today with some level of respect for religious people, some level of respect for the history of the Bible and its influence upon our society but I would call you to go past the respect to enter into the joy of the Lord. To come in abject spiritual poverty before Him as one who has violated His law, broken His heart, and rebelled against Him. And to know that in His death and resurrection there is forgiveness of sin. You must come repentant. Someday, not today, but someday, we invite you to join us at this table as you come to trust him for the forgiveness of sin. But let a person, Paul continues, let a person consider. Failing to eat and drink in an unworthy manner renders one guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That is, one is rendered liable for Christ's death. This is true of all of us by nature, but if we scoff at the reconciling, unifying work of Christ in His achievement on the cross, we may well display our lostness. And so anyone who comes in an an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so in response and warning, verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, discerning the body. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's pause there just for a moment. Discerning the body. There's debate on what that means and it certainly means the death of Christ. But I think here it's very conceivable that discerning the body is a reference to the body, the church. If one comes without thinking about and being reconciled to the body, that is possible then to receive the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner because we are not thinking of the unity that we have in Christ that he purchased with his death. And it's quite serious warning, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We know nothing about the circumstances behind this declaration. We cannot know why Paul makes it or how he makes it. But there is such a thing as a divine discipline which Paul now emphasizes in verse 31. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's possible that he uses every use of judge here in a different way. He's playing on this word. 
It's clear what he's saying, though. He uses Through this play on words, if we judge ourselves, that is, if we render honest self-assessment and repent of our lack of love and lack of unity with the flock, then we eliminate the need for corrective discipline by the Lord. For the true believer, there is no more condemnation. We are delivered by Christ's death and granted his righteous standing. So we, we need to live like it. And we will if we truly belong to him. So severe warning. And then counsel. Put others first at the Lord's table. Here's his last word of instruction, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. You see that? Wait for one another. This is where we think possibly the construction, the societal background and culture and the construction that we've offered here is is on track the key is to wait for each other that word would speak of hospitality of welcome of reception but possibly even and and here it's just conjecture but it's possible that he's even saying wait for those slaves and poor people have, have have responsibilities at work to arrive before you begin to eat. So bring your tube steak. We're not eating high on the hog here. It's not going to be fine dining. And wait for them to arrive so that you all eat together. I think is his directive. If, verse 34, anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Paul does not teach that the wealthier members must eat just like the poor all the time. There will be economic differences, and there is nothing wrong with this as such. It would be arbitrary, unworkable to pretend otherwise. Paul's not foolish. But he says, eat those nicer meals at your house, not at the Lord's table. Come together to celebrate the oneness, the unity, the reconciling power of Christ. And translate then to eating simpler meals at the Lord's table that unite brothers and sisters in Christ. About the other things I will give directions when I come. No commentator has ever been able to crack the code of what those directions were or what they had to do with. Though I will offer to you that I think I've cracked the code. I think he's asking them, how do you serve gluten-free bread? (laughs) Is it okay to stack the cups on top of each other? We have no idea. They had more to talk about. Our celebration of the Lord's table looks very, very different, doesn't it? I imagine if Chloe came back to life, that woman mentioned there in the early part of the book she came back to life and she came and visited us from the dead she'd be appalled at these minuscule rations that we eat and drink she wouldn't get it like where's the meal wow you people are really poor (laughs) or at least you've taken paul's eat at home to the extreme Massive cultural divide, isn't there? But what does not divide us, what we must 